0: No, no, no.
1: Good evening, and welcome to Here There Be Monsters podcast. I am your captain, Derek Hayes. It's finally here. October is in its death throes. The celebration of Halloween is upon us. And as promised, tonight we're going to do something a little unique. I've asked that you, the listeners, submit your favorite campfire story for this special episode, and you did not disappoint. But before we launch into those submissions... I'd like to recite the original ghost story from my favorite author, Edgar Allan Poe. On a midnight dreary While I pondered Weak and weary Over many a quaint And curious volume Of forgotten lore While I nodded Nearly napping Suddenly there came A tapping As if someone Gently rapping Rapping at my chamber door Tis some visitor I muttered Tapping at my chamber door Only this Nothing more Ah distinctly I remember It was in the bleak December And each separate Dying ember wrought its ghost Upon the floor Eagerly I'd wished morrow, and vainly I'd sought to borrow from my book's surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before. So that now, To still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor, entreating entrance at my chamber door. Some late visitor, entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more." Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating, then no longer, sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here, I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and in an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I hear a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my windowed lattice. Let me see then what thereat is, and this mystery I'll explore. Let my heart be still a moment and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obedience made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mine of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. This ebony bird beguiling, my sad fancy in the smiling, by the grave and stern decorum of the consonants it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no Craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on this night's Plutonian shore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly foul to hear discourse so plainly. Though its answer little meaning, little revelancy bore, for we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast above a sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such a name as Nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the palace bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour nothing further than he uttered, not a feather that he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before, on the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before, then the bird said, Nevermore. startled at the stillness broken, by replies so aptly spoken, doubtless I said, what it utters is only stock in store, Caught from some unhappy master whom a merciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, nevermore, but the raven still beguiling all my fancy into smiling straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door, then upon a velvet sinking. I betook myself to linking, fancy into fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly ghastly gaunt and ominous bird of yore meant by croaking, nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamp light gloated o'er, but whose velvet, violet lining with the lamp light gloating o'er, she shall press, ah, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from some unseen censers, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy god hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent me, respite, Respite and repent From thy memories of Lenore quoth, O oh, quoth this Lenore And forget this lost Lenore Quoth the raven Nevermore Prophet said I Thing of evil Prophet still of bird or devil Whether tempest sent Or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore Desolate yet undaunted On this desert land enchanted On this home by honor haunted Tell me truly I implore is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet, still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that god we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, within the distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden, whom the angels named Lenore. Clasp a rare and radiant maiden, Whom the angels named Lenore Quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, Bird or fiend, I shrieked upstarting, Get back thee to the tempest, And to the night's plutonian shore, Leave no black plume as a token Of the lie thy soul has spoken, Leave my loneliness unbroken, Quit the bust above my door, Take thy beak from out my heart, And take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting, on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. His eyes have all the seeming of a demon that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadows on the floor, and my soul from out that shadow lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore and now for something a little more contemporary our first submission is from Don here is his gruesome tale
2: hey this is Don a first time caller long time listener and I uh, just wanted to share this oldie but a goodie vampire in the taxi story with everybody It was my first night driving a taxi. It was late, and there were not a lot of people on the street. I was about to go home, but I was hailed by a man on a dark corner. He wore a dark-colored coat, collars up, and his hat was pulled low over his eyes as if he didn't want anyone to see his face. He got into the back of my cab, and I pulled off and started driving down the street. My passenger leaned forward and tapped me on the shoulder. I screamed and almost lost control of the cab. Nearly hit a bus, drove up on the curb, and stopped just inches from a large plate-glass window. I don't know why. I guess he spooked me. His touch was so cold, and he smelled. He smelled real bad. Like something decaying. Like a dead animal. For a few minutes, everything was silent in the cab. Then, still shaking, I said, I'm sorry, but you scared the daylights out of me. I stared at him in the rearview mirror. His head was a silhouette against the back window. I couldn't see his eyes. Just a black, shadowy shape where his face should be. My passenger apologized, saying that he didn't realize a tap on the shoulder could be so scary. No, no, I said. It's my fault. This is my first day driving a taxi. For the last 25 years, I've driven a hearse. Where was it you wanted to go? The man in back just said, North Cemetery. I drove him there in silence. When we got there, he got out of the cab and told me to wait. And if you don't wait, you will be sorry, he said. Well, I didn't feel very comfortable, but I wanted the money, so I waited. After a while he came back, and as strange as it may sound, he seemed to be wiping something from his hands. As he slouched down in the shadows of my back seat, the man just said, South Cemetery. So we drove, and when we got there, the same thing happened again. He told me to wait for him. I was feeling more and more uncomfortable, but I waited. I wondered what he could be doing in the cemetery so late at night. What business could he have there? He returned to the car, brushing something from his clothes. I didn't ask him any questions. He returned to the darkness of the back seat, and seemed to be wiping something from his mouth. When he was done, he just said, East Cemetery. Although very frightened, I was determined to get my money. My curiosity got the better of me, and despite my fears, I was determined to see what he was doing. So this time I followed him into the dark cemetery. I tiptoed behind him, stepping softly through the long grass and the muck. I watched him as he walked silently among the headstones. He seemed to be looking for one in particular. He came to a fresh grave, then fell to his knees and used his hands to scrape and dig at the earth until he got down to the coffin. I was barely breathing, afraid he would hear me. I was terrified, but I couldn't run away. My legs felt like dead weight. I was rooted to the spot. I saw him open, open the coffin lid. And as he bent over the coffin, I could see inside it. I caught a glimpse of the features of a fresh corpse lying in the open coffin. I was so terrified I couldn't move in darkness. Then the man stood up. Perhaps he heard me breathing. Maybe he heard the gravel crunch underneath my shoes. He came straight towards me, quickly, almost running, but it didn't seem like running. It was as if he was gliding fast and silent over the grass. In seconds, he was upon me, grasping my shirt and pulling my face close to his. I smelled his terrible, decaying breath. I saw something dark and sticky dribbling from his mouth. I managed to stutter. Are are you a vampire? He screamed, yes, as he sunk his fangs deep into my neck. Thank you. Happy Halloween, everybody.
1: Thank you, Don. Surprisingly, that is not one that I'd heard before. Next up is a story about a European legend.
0: Hi, Derek. I'm a fan of the show, um, but I've never really had my own kind of encounter, so I wanted to call in and leave a submission for the Halloween special, so I could finally give a little bit of contribution to the show. So this is a little bit of Scandinavian folklore I picked up while I was studying in the region. I hope you enjoy. Do not go into the forest in winter if you can help it. If you cannot avoid it, you must be a strong-willed person, or you may fall victim to a mureling. Murelings were human ones. They were small babies and children until they were abandoned. Their mothers could not, or sometimes would not, care for them, and they would be left to die of exposure in the woods. Some yearlings are near hours old when they came into being. Because a yearling has no grave, it cannot rest, and so it will search and search in desperation for the place where it belongs. It will trudge endlessly through the snow, thin, shaking, and wailing, unable to stop. If you see a yearling staggering through the snow, look away. Do not acknowledge its presence. If the yearling notices you, it will approach you. It will stare up at you with hollow tearful eyes and clasp your hand with tiny trembling fingers and beg for help it will tell you it cannot find its grave and it is so tired so cold it cannot walk any further please carry me to my grave it will ask please so i can finally rest do not accept the mirroring's quest do not look it in the face its eyes will be too sad and too desperate for you to say no if you leave The mirroring will not chase you. It is too exhausted to bother. But if you say yes to the mirroring's request, you have sealed your own fate. You will pick up the mirroring in your arms, and it will cling to you, desperate for the warmth and comfort of your body. It will feel freezing, but it will be lightweight. A thin, tiny child, certainly easy enough to carry. But that won't be the case for long. Soon you will notice the mirling growing heavy in your arms. Perhaps you were thinking, Perhaps you will think you are just getting tired, but no. The longer you carry the mirrorling, the more it will weigh. You will want to put the child down. You will want to rest as your arms ache and your legs begin to buckle, but you will not be able to. You must take it to its grave. It would not be long before you could walk no further. You will collapse in the snow, still clutching the mirrorling and be unable to move anymore. The mirrorling will be angry. It will demand why you are not doing what you said, why you are letting it down. Nothing you can say will call its rage. It will be so disappointed, so frustrated that you have failed it, that it will attack you. It will bite you, claw at you, dig its sharp little teeth and sharp little nails into your skin, and you will be too tired to move, exhausted from the weight of carrying the creature, and all you could do is lay there, or it tears you apart piece by piece. Afterwards, when you are dead and the snow is soaked with your blood, the yearling will finally detach itself from your arms. It will cry, perhaps because it feels guilty, or perhaps it has once again been kept away from the resting place. It will leave your body behind, wandering off through the snow, hoping it will finally find someone strong enough to carry it to its grave. Thanks for listening, Derek. Hope the show keeps going and keeps going good.
1: Thank you for your submission. I gotta be honest here, this sounds eerily similar to the Pukwudgie legends of the Bridgewater Triangle in western Massachusetts. Uh, Very interesting stuff, and I'd be interested to see if there's maybe some sort of correlation between the two folklores. Our next submission is a Cthulhu-inspired original, submitted by Christopher. Though I live in New Mexico now, about as far from the ocean as it's possible to be, I grew up in Scotland, in a remote coastal village by the name of Scurries. Scurries was, perhaps still is, little more than a few houses huddled around a harbour. A once lively fishing port reduced through generations of hardship to just a few idle trawlers, its population shrinking year after year, until one day it will simply cease to exist. Growing up in such a place, I was a lonely child, dreamy and forlorn. During term time, I attended the village school with a handful of other children, of all different ages. Having no friends of my own age, I spent my summers wandering along the coast, imagining myself an adventurer in far off lands, exploring all the secret nooks of my private kingdom. The coast in that part of the world is quite imposing, bleak and beautiful, all granite cliffs and lonely bays, with with rocks standing like dark sentinels amidst the sucking tides. Odd noises are common there, and often on my wanderings I would think for a moment to hear certain strange noises coming from the ocean, only for the sounds to stop just as abruptly as they had started. Like my parents, I generally put these things down to the sounds of the ocean, distorted by the imagination of a lonely young boy. When I was about 13 years old, however, something happened to me one summer afternoon which would change my perception forever. It was a warm summer afternoon and I was in the shallows of a secluded bay, idly poking through the rock pools for crabs, daydreaming of some fantasy realm as usual. I was enjoying myself, the sun on my back as I waded through the shallows searching through the kelp with a plastic spade to see what I could uncover. Gazing down into the rippling waters, I became aware of a sound coming from somewhere beyond my sight a voice raised in a haunted melody. The voice had an eerie, unearthly quality to it, and I did not recognize it as any language I had heard before. These sounds touched something inside me, stirring feelings of longing that my young heart had never known before. Barely knowing what I was doing, I crawled to the top of a large rock and peered out over the waters. Out in the center of the bay, A lone rock rose above the waters, and on this rock was a young woman, completely naked, facing forward me, singing that haunting melody. Her skin was pale as marble, and I could see what looked like seashells and pieces of kelp intertwined in her hair. She reminded me of a painting of a sea nymph that I had seen somewhere before. The same entrancing mixture of innocence and seduction showed in her delicate features. It seemed as if she had always been there, waiting for me. Our eyes met, and a gentle smile passed across her lips. I was entrapped. I drifted, half awake, for what seemed like an eternity, her voice filling my entire awareness. She sang to me, it seemed, of strange and wonderful things, things which could be mine if only I were prepared to take them. Finally, some instinct awoke me, and I found myself teetering at the edge of the large rock just a few feet above the waters, poised, as if I were about to dive in. I jumped back with a yelp, fully aware, my desire now horribly replaced by fear. Out in the bay, the woman had disappeared, though it seemed as though the singing had only ended a moment before. A considerable amount of time must have passed, for the sun was now low upon the horizon, and there was a damp chill in the air. Hearing the noise, I looked down. The waters below me were seething and bubbling as though something were rising from the depths. I scrambled to my feet and ran back across a rock, intent on the safety of home. I reached the path leading back for the village, thankful to be away from those dark waters for a moment. I felt as though I had escaped some terrible fate. Then the voice began again. The voice, that same seductive voice from before... Was now coming from somewhere on the path behind me, and though I did not understand the words, their meaning somehow came to me, freezing my heart with terror. "'Come to me, my love,' the voice seemed to say, "'for it is cold down here, and I am alone.' There was a cold edge to that voice which pierced my heart like silver ice. I broke into a sprint, not daring to look back. The voice continued... Slow and mocking, it drifted on the breeze, closer. Come, my love, it whispered. You shall reign down here, mighty king. You shall be the sun to this cold, dark kingdom. I began to pray in my mind, not daring to look anywhere but at the path before me. It drifted closer, its voice almost in my ear, and though I choked and sobbed, the voice rose above everything, soft and insistent. It whispered to me of a vast abyss, of the dreaming court where I would sit for all time, watching over my kingdom with empty eyes, as blind as the pale things that made their homes amidst my entrails. I was hysterical, my breathing coming in gasps, the limbs flailing almost caught. Still, it drew closer. I saw clearly my mind's eye then, no longer a seductive nymph, but now revealed as an ancient hag, Flesh hanging like tattered rags Seaweed tangled in its lank hair Its eyes burning pits of despair A claw stretched out toward me Mere inches away The path turned a sudden corner And I saw before me The stone cross which marked the parish boundary Wine colored and alive In the rays of the setting sun Something stirred inside me then A flicker of hope With final desperation I surged forward It touched me then, a freezing claw at my neck, dulling my mind with despair, snapping the life from my veins. But then, as I faltered, even as I was almost lost to the abyss, my hands touched the warm stone of the cross. It was as though the sun arose within me, pouring forth warmth and light to chase away the dark shadow which had fallen across my soul. There was a final, ear-piercing screech of rage, and the memory of that freezing touch faded away. I clung weakly to the cross, gasping and shaking as relief coursed through me. It was gone. That was almost thirty years now. Though the memories of that evening have haunted me ever since, life has not been unkind to me in other regards. After a troubled youth, I relocated to the United States where I started a family and enjoyed some small success as a businessman. I find that I am capable of being happy. Still, there are occasions. A cold breeze on my neck at twilight, for instance. Or else the appearance of some dead-eyed addict emerging from the darkened alley where I feel the weight of that night hanging over my existence. For knowledge of darkness can never truly be dispelled. It stays with you, your life's constant companion. People will sometimes ask me why a kid who grew up by the sea would ever want to settle in an arid desert of southern New Mexico. I just smile and tell them I prefer the warm climate, that I fell in love with the rolling mesas and the soft, rose-colored desert. But of course, I can hardly tell them the truth. I can hardly tell them of the black depths that still haunt my nightmares nor of the things that lurk in that abyss, waiting to drag unsuspecting souls down to the dark and lonely kingdom that awaits them there. Thank you, Christopher. That was pretty great. I gotta uh, i got to admit I got a little bit cold reading that story. Our final story of the evening is one close to my heart. This particular story was one I often told my younger brothers on campouts. A story that was said to have taken place in a remote Appalachian forest, just like the one I grew up in.
3: Hi, um, I love the show, and uh, this story is for the Halloween episode. So it's a fictional story. Um, this is a story that I personally loved growing up and maybe some other people listening out there love it as much as me and it'll bring back some memories so here it is the trials and tribulations of living in today's modern society can tend to wear on your nerves one can grow very weary of dealing with bills taxes insurance traffic pollution and keeping food on the table and oftentimes the whole thing can make you want to holler throw up your hands And that's exactly what old Bill Smith did. He gave up all the luxuries, and if you ask me some of the necessities, of modern life. He loaded up just the barest of essentials and his three hunting dogs into his truck and moved way up into the North Georgia mountains. Smitty, that's what all of us folks in town called him, figured it wouldn't be that much of an adjustment. After all, he loved hunting, fishing, and the great outdoors. And he did have the companionship of his three best friends, his dogs, I know, you know, and Comptico Calico. What more could a man ask for? So he built himself a nice little cabin way back in the woods. It wasn't very big. It was just enough for him. The cabin only had two rooms, one he used for the bedroom and the other for everything else. He had built himself a nice big fireplace where he could cook his food and warm his body on chilly nights. he planted himself a nice little vegetable garden on the side of the house and would hunt and fish for most of his food but at least once a month he'd drive the 25 miles down the mountain to the little store to buy those things he couldn't provide for himself during the warm months he had no problem catching game and fishing but the colder months proved to be a little more difficult to keep his stomach full Well, it was on one of those cold winter nights that Smitty went out to his storage shed to see what he could find for dinner. And all he found was a small piece of fatback meat and a handful of rice. There was too much snow on the ground to travel the 25 miles to the store, so he had to make do with what he had. He ate the fatback and a little bit of the rice and gave most of the rice and the boiled water to his dog. After all, they had to eat, too. He called out. I know, you know. Contigo Calico, come on doggies and get you some of this dinner. And the dogs came running as fast as they could and lapped up all the rice mixture. Smitty was still a little hungry but there wasn't much he could do about it so despite the protest of his grumbling stomach he stroked the fire in the fireplace to keep the cabin warm and he went to bed. The sound of the wind blowing around in the tiny cabin had almost lulled him to sleep when he heard something. He opened his eyes and saw a shadow on the wall. He eased out of bed and took it to the other room, and there he saw the oddest looking creature he'd ever seen. It was short and stubby, with pointed ears, and short fat feet with long claws, and it had a long bushy tail. There were no open doors or windows, so he was a little confused about how the funny looking thing had gotten in. He quietly picked up his axe crept over to the odd critter who was devouring an insect of some sort, raised his axe, and came down squarely on the creature's tail. Smitty turned to catch the varmint, but he was just too quick. It hurriedly escaped through the wall. So Smitty was left standing there with this long, bushy tail and blood-laden axe in his hand and no sign of the funny-looking creature. He was about to throw the old tail out the door when his growling stomach reminded him of how hungry he was. So he took the tail, cleaned it, cooked it, some of the herbs from his garden, and he ate it. And it didn't taste that bad. Kind of tasted like chicken. With his stomach finally full, then he got back into his warm, cozy bed. He had just drifted off into a deep sleep when a strange sound awakened him sounded like something trying to scratch its way into the cabin, probably a raccoon. Smitty knew that if he stayed really quiet, it would probably just go away. So he stayed as quiet as he could, and then he heard a strange, otherworldly voice, which fessed, Poe! I want my Po!" So he thought the wind was playing tricks on his ears, but then he heard it again. Taillipo! Po! I want my Kaleepo! Smitty jumped out of bed, flung open the door, and called out to his dogs. I know! You know! Come tico Calico! Come on over and see what's making that noise! The dogs came running, barking, sniffing, but they didn't find anything. So Smitty put the dogs back outside and he went back to bed. Sleep had just eased itself into Smitty's body when he heard the voice again. This time the scratching sounded like it was at the window. And whatever it was really, really wanted to get in. But the scratching seemed to be on two walls at once. So then he called out, Hey, 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 who's that at my door? Get out of way from there. Then he heard the strange voice again, only this time a little louder. Terry poe! Terry poe! I want my Terry poe! Terry poe! I'M COMING TO GET MY CAILIE BALL! Old Smitty, who wasn't one to frighten easily, was getting a little shaky. This was getting really weird. So he eased to the window and called, I KNOW! YOU KNOW! I'M TICO CALICO! COME ON OVER HERE AND SEE WHAT'S SCRATCHING ON MY DOOR! The three dogs bounded up to the porch and they sniffed around and barked, barked, sniffed, found nothing at all. Smitty so decided to stay up for the rest of the night to protect himself and his dogs in his little cabin so he pulled a chair next to the fireplace, grabbed a blanket from his bed, and settled in for the rest of the wind-chilled, wintry night. He soon dozed off again. It was almost dawn when Smitty woke with a start. The sound of the scratching seemed to reverberate from every area of the cabin. Smitty searched frantically for his axe, his rifle, or something to defend himself with, but he couldn't find anything. The scratching grew louder and louder and louder, and then the voice, Taylor Poe! Where's my calipo? Give me, my my po. Po. Give me Give back, back my calipo. Smitty yelled back, Leave me alone, I ain't got your calipo. And then he called, I know, you know, come Tico Calico. Come on out and protect your old master. This time, dogs didn't come, so he called them again. I know, you know, come Tico Calico. Come on here, doggies. He waited and waited, but still not one dog came running. He'd never been so scared in his life. He ran to his bed and jumped in. The scratching voice grew louder and louder and louder. Smitty yelled back as loud as he could. I ain't got your taily po. Why don't you go leave me alone? Go about your business. I ain't never hurt nobody. Just leave me alone. The scratching seemed to be inside the house now and the voice was getting so loud it was deafening. Taily Poe, you kept my taily po Now I'm gonna get it back. Give it to me now! So then he pulled the cover over his head and stayed as quiet as he could. But the scratching was now in his room. Tail-y-po! You better give me back my Kailippo! Smitty so then, then felt the thing scratching up the bottom of the bed and onto the cover. Smitty so eased the cover down to see what was steadily approaching. Then he saw a short, stubby figure with pointed ears, fat feet, long claws, bloodshot red eyes that glowed in the dark eyes that seemed to burn straight through him. Before he could pull the cover over his head, the thing pounced on his chest, looked straight down at him and said, you've got my taily and now you better give it back to me. Smitty yelled, I ate it! I ate your taily It's gone! And that thing started to scratch and claw and tear away poor old Smitty trying to get a taily back. Then he tried to fight it but the thing was too strong and those claws were too sharp. Smitty's screams echoed through the dark mountains but then stopped delivering a chilling silence. After a month or two without hearing from Smitty, the folks who owned the store at the base of the mountain went up to the cabin to make sure everything was all right. When they got there, they found his cabin torn to shreds, but no sign of Smitty or the dogs. They searched through the woods and called for him. "Smitty, I know, you know,' I'm Chico Calico but they never found a thing. As the search party was heading down the mountain, the wintry wind began to blow, and a strange voice could be heard saying, Taillipo, po now I've got my po.
1: I gotta admit I love that story. Well that does it for this special Halloween episode of Here There Be Monsters. I hope you enjoyed hearing these stories as much as I did. Before I sign off, I want to remind everyone to please rate and review the show on iTunes. Your input goes a long way to not only improve the show, but also spread the word. Also, if you've had an encounter and would like to share your story, please give the hotline a call at one. 888-608-NIGHT That's 1-888-608-6444 It's come to my attention that the audio recording system I use to record the calls has had a recent glitch. So if you've submitted a story in the past few weeks and haven't heard yours on the air, please reach out to me. Hopefully we can get everything cleared up so we don't miss a single story. Alright folks, that does it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. Happy Halloween and until next time.